0: Good evening. You know, there are times when you might look out on an auditorium on a Sunday night and uh, see so many empty pews and be discouraged. This is not one of those times. When we think between the campers and the staff and those who are directing in some way working at camp, or maybe some who have chosen to be down at camp for worship tonight, uh, it's exciting. It shows how many folks are committed uh, to what is a great work. Uh, And not just the baptisms that come directly or indirectly as a result of the encouragement that's received or the decisions that are made, the positive peer pressure, Uh, but it's a thrill to hear that they've not even really gotten into the swing of camp and they've already had a baptism. We have had a, a new brother and new sister added to Christ, two of them, in about 24 hours, and so that's thrilling. You know, on a Sunday night, sometimes what we can do, we have the luxury to do this, is to speak about something that we hope can be more hands-on, that can be uh, practical in some way that we can grasp onto it. And I hope tonight's lesson serves in that particular vein. To me, it is one of the great challenges that we should have for ourselves is to think about how to get a Bible study You know it's been said in different uh, environments and venues of late about how each of us have our own sets of opportunities and while it's true that we may have a majority of our associations inside the body of Christ because we surround ourselves, our close friendships with people who are of like-minded faith, God has us in this world to be salt and light and so he wants us in contact with people that are lost. And when we think about a subject like this, a good place for us to begin is to go back to the first century church. And we see that it was a growing institution, and it was because of a statement that Luke makes by inspiration in Acts 8 and verse 4, that they went everywhere preaching the word. When I look at the early church, they had potlucks, Acts chapter 2 and verse 46. Paul alludes to them in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. They also had church problems and morality issues to deal with as early as Acts chapter 5 when they were an infant church. They also had internal needs to meet. We see right after this in Acts chapter 6 verse 1 and the verses following with the Grecian widows. But in all of those other things they always had their eyesight on the risen Lord and the great commission that he had given to all of them. If we're going to restore New Testament Christianity, it is something that we must always be working on to try to evangelize as they evangelized. You know, I mentioned my dad, and I do so not just because I'm proud of him, but I know that he watches just about every YouTube service of the Lehman Avenue congregation, and I look forward to hearing what he says when I mention him. My dad was a gospel preacher, is a gospel preacher. He did it full-time without retirement for 55 years. And dad was trained at Freed Hardeman College, and he was there in the early 1960s. And because of my dad and because of my own work as a preacher, I have met a great many of his fellow students who were trained at the same time to preach. And it's remarkable to me that of all groups of individuals I've known in my lifetime, that as a group, men, including my dad, in that group of uh, students in the early 60s at Freed are exceptional soul winners. I tried to find out why uh, and I found out from my dad that he had his class personal evangelism from an instructor named W.A. Bradfield. It's a name that will mean almost nothing to anybody today but those who were living in the 50s, 60s, and 70s considered him one of the great gospel preachers of our entire nation. Brother Bradfield was a powerful, dynamic speaker. He spoke the word with passion and enthusiasm, but he worked really hard at evangelism. Wayne Berger, who was a teacher out at Bear Valley when I was out there and a classmate of my dad's, told me this about uh, Brother Bradfield. He said that whenever he was going to preach a gospel meeting, he would uh, contact the congregation ahead and he would ask them to send him a hundred prospects. And he would begin contacting them before and during the meeting. And so it was the result of his seeking out and finding individuals that he was so effective in evangelism. You know, I started preaching full time in 1992 And there was a time when I was a boy and growing up where it seems like that there were more, what we might say, average members of the church who were involved in studying the Bible with others. And they would refer to or use a phrase, cottage meetings. We don't use that term anymore, but I think I know why it was used. It was another term for in-home Bible studies. And I think that that phrase was born of a very famous in-home Bible study That took place in Acts chapter 10 verse 22 through 24. You have Peter and some brethren from Joppa who come and and Peter preaches the word and teaches in a Bible study with Cornelius and with his relatives and with his close friends. And they were, it was effective. Now I know God was involved directly in speaking to Cornelius on one end and Peter on the other. But there was Peter's willingness to go and to get up that Bible study we might say. When we look at the church of the 50s, 60s, and 70s, we don't want to be idealistic. They had problems, they had deficiencies, and we know this, but they were evangelistic. And as we look at them, we realize that they did not have any more influence in their community than we do. They weren't smarter than we are. And as we examine them, we realize that they, as a people, were not blessed with more time than we have. We might say that they were more convicted, they were more courageous, they were more motivated, but these are things that we can incorporate. But this is not a beat-us-up sermon. I, I find myself in a situation to where I, I seek to have as a goal to have one Bible study going at least at a time, and, and it's, it's important for us to try to have somebody that we can sit down and study with. But I don't know about you, but sometimes I struggle in that regard. And when I'm having what you might say a dry spell or when I'm not studying the Bible with somebody, I need to find out how I can do that better. If you share that feeling, if you would like to try to have somebody that you could sit down and study with, but you'd like some direction, I think that what we're going to look at tonight can be helpful. Not because it comes from me, certainly not. But I'd like to direct our attention to the Bible. And as we look at the Bible, I'd like for us to see three examples of individuals who were able to get somebody or individuals in a Bible study. And I'd like to see some of what they did that we can do in order to do the same. All right, so the first thing we're going to do is look at the example of Jesus and the Samaritan woman. In John chapter 4, we see her as Jesus comes to her, and we look at Jesus, the example of the soul winner. Now, anytime we want to know any kind of a how-to in life, the best thing we could ever do is look at Jesus. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 21, he is our example no matter what the struggle is that we're dealing with. And if you look at Jesus, the soul winner, there's no more practical and effective example that we can find than Jesus' interaction with the Samaritan woman. How many Bible classes and sermons have we heard on this? But I want to look at how Jesus got her into a Bible study. And and there's several things I want to look at, and if we'll do what Jesus did, it may help us in our goal of sitting down with somebody and sharing the good news of Jesus. The first thing that you've got to do is you've got to go to the people. We find this in Jesus' journey in John chapter 4, verse 4 through 6. The scriptures start by saying that Jesus had to go through Samaria and he goes to a Samaritan village named Sychar and there's a well there that Jacob had had made for his son and that well is where Jesus goes in John chapter 4 verse 4 through 6. And Jesus as he makes this decision to go there does not do so out of custom. As a Jew it was not the custom to go through Samaria. The custom that the Jews followed was to go on the east side of the Jordan, way out of the way in a place called Perea. And by doing so, they could avoid contaminating themselves by having to associate with Samaritans. And so Jesus was not going to the people out of custom. It was not what his fellow Jews would do. And it was not a decision made out of convenience. Even though it was a more convenient route and it saved some time because Jesus did not make decisions based on convenience. But it was a matter of conviction. There's a reason why the Spirit moves John to say that he had to go to Samaria. You know, we find ourselves in an increasingly isolated time. Isn't it easy for us to just kind of wrap our life into our own little individual personal worlds? We go through the whatever the exercises of the day are that we have. Maybe we're focused in on our work life and our personal life. But we find ourselves, and especially since the pandemic, more isolated. I look at Jesus and I see him putting himself in a place where he could get into a Bible study. He goes to the people and he waits. The next thing that we see in addition to this is that you've got to be willing To be inconvenienced. Jesus inconveniences himself. We see this on two uh, frames. First of all, Jesus inconvenienced himself because he was very weary. As he's making this journey, he comes and he sits down by the well. Jesus, the demands of his ministry were ongoing. And this is no exception. And so Jesus, tired from the journey, he sits as he waits for this encounter that's to come. We also know that he's hungry. Verse 31 through 34, the disciples have gone into the village to find food. So Jesus is willing to inconvenience himself. I know it's hard for us to find a convenient time to reach out to somebody who needs the gospel. We've got to lay ourselves out there and inconvenience ourselves. He also wasn't concerned about what other people might say. He wasn't concerned about how people might judge the people that he was trying to reach out with the gospel. Even his disciples didn't understand verse 27. And so as we get ourselves out there among the people, we've also got to be willing to inconvenience ourselves. Then we've also got to initiate the conversation. In verse 9, the Bible tells us that a Samaritan woman comes to get get water from the well. And Jesus says to her, give me a drink. You know, as we pray for opportunities, and I hope we do, opportunities to share the gospel, you know, sometimes I wonder, what am I thinking when I'm praying that prayer? Am I praying for God to send people into the assembly where I'll have access to them? Or am I praying that as I have a conversation with somebody, that they'll bring up the spiritual? And sometimes it may happen that way, but you'll notice that Jesus goes to the people and He starts the conversation, and this is uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable to initiate a conversation knowing in your mind that you want it to move towards something deeper and more important. Now it starts with that informational and it starts with that rapport that we're trying to build with people. But what we're going to have to do is get outside of a shyness that we may put on ourselves that says I'm just going to mind my own business. I'm going to stay withdrawn. I I just don't want the the energy drain that this is going to be. But we also need to do as Jesus did and treat the prospect in our mind as a person in need. You know, she comes and she's trying to draw water. But Jesus knows more about her and realizes that her need is far greater than the water. When we come to analyze who she would have been, she would have been a Samaritan and so someone who was a religious misfit. She was a woman, someone seen as a social inferior in first century culture. And she was a Samaritan woman, which made it even worse. But she was a woman with an apparent reputation. But we also see that she all seems to be someone who is trying to avoid contact with other people. How often have we noticed that the time that would have made more sense in that Middle Eastern world would be to come in the morning in the cool of the day. But in the cool of the day, there's probably going to be a lot more people there. And so she comes at the noon hour, in which it would have been hot. It didn't make sense for her except that she's not with the people. Jesus did not shy away from the people whose need was great like that, who might have been a more difficult person to deal with. He saw her as a soul in need. But then you also find him bringing up God. After Jesus initiates the conversation and she speaks to him, do you notice how he turns the conversation to God? He says, if you knew who it was who was asking you for a drink, you would ask me and I would give you living water. You see, he he identifies himself as one who is aligned with God. He is ultimately going to tell her that he is the Messiah. He's going to point her to the Heavenly Father. And this is one that's a challenge. I don't know for you, but it can be for me. You know, I love to talk about sports. I love to talk about uh, things that are current events. I'll even engage in talking about politics. But isn't it hard for us to try some way to turn it to God? But we can look in every situation. If we'll pray in advance, there will be a door that opens. And we can bring up God and insert Him into this situation. As people whose lives center around God. It'll become more and more natural for us to take the thing that we're talking about in front of us, whether it's their house, their work, their family, and we can bring it to God. Jesus does that here. You'll also find that what he does is he creates a thirst. He takes an urgent, ordinary need. And he uses that as an object lesson to get to her greater need. You know, she comes and and she's beginning to be curious and as she hears about this living water that Jesus is talking about, He creates this desire and so that that there's a change in the the matter. In verse 7 she says, You give me a drink. By the time we get to verse 15, she is saying to Him, Give me this water. He creates a thirst. Look how He does it. He says, This is a well springing up into eternal life. This is a water that you will never thirst again. You know, there is so much that we could say even about the life and events, the excitement of life at the Lehman Avenue Church of Christ. What's going to happen? What's been happening? and, And all the folks that God is sending our way, both in the community and from other places in our brotherhood who have come here, let's be excited and talk about that and create a desire because people are looking for community. They are looking to belong. Jesus understood this is a woman who is an outcast, who has a great weariness, who has a dysfunction in her personal life. And Jesus creates a thirst in her. Then Jesus exposes her sin. Do you notice that there's a lot that's taken place? We don't know how much time, but he doesn't lead off by saying, hey, you've had uh, five husbands and the man that you have is not yours. He gets there, we've got to get there. We have got to expose people to their spiritual need. But if we'll take the time to build the rapport and the relationship, then we get to the spiritual. You know, the the need was there all the time. Now, Jesus was able to read her heart. Jesus knew her story. And we don't always know people's story. We don't necessarily know what they've been through, but here's what they know. If they don't have Christ, no matter what's in their past, their greatest problem is still ahead. And so we've got to expose the sin. Not as one who's without sin, talking down to somebody who has it, but as one who understands the struggle of the sin problem. I think about how exceptional the Apostle Paul was. And even though he was a, a person who expended himself for Christ and could say that he went through all that he went through in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-three 23-31, he was very frank with people to say, I struggle with sin, but I know the answer, the remedy to it. That's what Jesus does, though he didn't struggle with sin. He exposes the sin problem. That's not where he leaves it. He listens to the questions that she has. She says something here. She says, you people say, here's what we believe. What's the right answer? How do I get this living water? Will you notice how Jesus, one by one, takes the questions that she asks? I don't know about you, but... Is it the case that so often we find ourselves afraid of the questions? We don't know what people are going to ask. We don't feel like we're going to be ready to answer that. But that's what our assemblies are all about. That's what our Bible classes are for. They're equipping us. And here is what we find so often. We know more than we think that we do. We have studied and we know more about what the Bible says about what they need than we think. And so often when we find ourselves in that situation... We have answers. We can point them, maybe, not to book, chapter, and verse, but we can help them with the principle. And if not, as we often say, we can tell them, listen, we're going to deal with that. Let me do some research on it, and I'll give you an answer. Jesus listens to her questions because she's searching, and he's now trying to get this Bible study further. Then you'll notice that he gives hope. After he exposes her sin problem, she deflects and she talks about a doctrinal issue. And Jesus uses that to further the Bible study opportunity. She says that there's this place where we worship God. And you say that worship is to be in Jerusalem. That Mount Gerizim is where the the worship of the Samaritans was. It was based on the, the temple that was built, their holy place back when their ancestors intermarried with foreign settlers when Samaria fell in 722 B.C. And so it was still a holy place in Jesus' day. And she wants to know where's the right place to worship. And Jesus is clarifying that there's a new day coming because of Him. That not in these mountains, not in Jerusalem is where you're going to worship, but the Father is seeking true worshipers to worship Him in spirit and in truth. And She talks about the fathers, but you'll notice that Jesus refers to the heavenly father. That's where the hope is to be found. It's remarkable to me that five times from verse 12 to verse 23, the word father is used. And she's worried about what her people believe. And he points her higher to the heavenly father. And he says that's where the hope is to be found. She's starting to put it all together. As she's listening to Jesus, she's hopeful. She says, we know that when that Messiah comes, who is called the Christ, that he will lead us. He'll answer these things for us. And Jesus says, I who speak to you am he. As we look at Jesus, the man who's getting up this Bible study, who is in this Bible study, notice what he's done to get here. And as we sit down with somebody, what they've got to know is that no matter where they've been, no matter what they've done, there's hope. There's no place too far gone. There's no thing that's done that cannot be recovered from. And if anybody knew that, it was the man who knew everything, Jesus. And Jesus speaking to a woman in such a broken condition offers hope. Then you'll also find that he follows through. Verse 39 through 41. Here's a woman who listens to Jesus and as her impression of him graduates and she becomes impressed that he is the one that they've been waiting for. She goes back. She leaves her water pot, an urgent need. Here is a woman who is isolating herself and what does she do? She goes to the men of the city. She goes right in the heart of the crowd and she says, I want you to know, see a man who's told me everything I've ever done. You know, when people encounter us, they should see Jesus. And when we walk away, they should be talking about Jesus. And here is Jesus with the Samaritan woman. He's in this Bible study, and we see now the gospel is spreading. It happens that way. Now, I don't know that I've seen it exactly happen that way here, but everywhere I've ever been, I have seen it start with one person. One person who obeys the gospel. And they go and they share it with somebody else. And then the gospel spreads through several other people. When we look at what happens here, Jesus follows through. He doesn't just get her in a right relationship. He continues to work with her. You know, he's supposed to go to Galilee, but what he does is he stays for two days and he continues to teach the people. Alright, so our question is, how do we get a Bible study up? Our first example is Jesus. Jesus and the Samaritan woman. And we see what he did to help her to study God's word and to change her life. Now the gospel has been preached. Jesus dies on the cross. He's buried. He's raised from the dead. He goes back to heaven. The church is established in Acts chapter 2. And our next two examples come right from the early days of the church. And a great example to me is the example uh, in Acts chapter 8 of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. Philip has been laboring down in Samaria. And the Bible tells him that the Spirit tells him to go and join himself to the chariot where there's an Ethiopian, uh, who, a eunuch, who is an official of the Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge of her treasure. And he's reading Isaiah the prophet. And he tells him to go and join himself to the chariot. And he runs and he joins himself there. And as he's reading from the prophet Isaiah, he's reading in this part of Isaiah... Where it says he was led as a lamb to as a, as a lamb he was led as a sheep to uh, slaughter as a lamb uh, who's before his shears dumb, he did not open up his mouth, and his humiliation his judgment was taken away. And who shall declare his generation? He was taken from the land of the living, and he says to Philip Of who does the prophet speak, of himself or some other man? You see, Philip has asked, do you understand what you're reading? He says, how can I, except some man should guide me? And so he invites him up into the chariot. And with that scripture, he preaches to him Jesus. And as they're going on the way, they come to water. And the eunuch says, see, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? Philip says, if you believe, uh, you may. He says, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. He commands the chariot to to stand still. They go down into the water, and he baptizes him both. Uh, And he goes on his way rejoicing. There in Acts chapter 8, verse 26 through 37, we have an individual who has his Bible open. He's returned from worshiping in Jerusalem. He is a man who is seeking and searching. In Matthew chapter 7, and verse 7, Jesus says, Ask and it shall be given unto you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and the door shall be opened unto you. I believe that Jesus is laying down a principle for us. And I believe it's true of our community as it is everywhere else in the world. We talked about our brother from Cyprus here recently. He is a prime example of that. He was an individual whose thirst was so great that he would not stop until he found the truth and he investigated and he found answers that uh, harmonized with the Word of God. I believe it's that way in our community. There are people who are asking, there are people who are seeking, there are people who are knocking. These are the very people who God is putting into our pathway. If we know God's word, don't we believe that God is going to answer their desire by putting us in their pathway? And as they ask and they seek, we can be Phillips to these eunuchs. Uh, we can be these folks who are looking for truth. What did he do to get him into this Bible study? I want you to notice these five things very quickly. That first of all, as we see his example... He obeyed the divine command to teach. God says to him, get up and go. What does he do? He gets up and he goes to that place. He realized that this invitation to share the gospel was meant for him. And what's remarkable is he's doing this fruitful work. He's engaged in building up the church. He's involved in a bigger work. And God says, leave that and go to this individual. And he does so without question. God gives us fields of opportunity that may not be glamorous, but when God has given us his great commission, we go when he tells us. But he also obeyed with urgency. What an example for me, because sometimes I don't don't feel it. I don't necessarily want to do it, but he ran, and he shows the great attitude that we have when we understand that the great commission is for all of us. When we see he obeyed with urgency, we also see that he asked specific and direct questions. He says to him, do you understand what you're reading? He invited him to then turn around and to talk about the gospel. And he opened his mouth. Do you notice that the eunuch is reading and he's trying to understand. And Philip opens his mouth and from that same scripture uses it as a launching pad. And he does so to teach him the gospel. But he also showed him Jesus in the Scriptures. When we look at verse 34 and 35, he shows us a principle that's true. No matter where we are in the Scriptures, all roads lead to Jesus. In our Revelation class this morning, the question was asked, who's the Bible about? The Bible is about Jesus. When you look at the scheme of redemption from Genesis to Revelation, it's all about Jesus. It's His story. And so wherever we are, whatever the Scripture is that we're discussing, let's take it to get to Jesus. And then there's the example of the husband and wife, Aquila and Priscilla and Apollos. What dynamos, and of all that we know about them, it's their evangelism, it seems, that stands out the most. They're with Paul in the second missionary journey. They're in Corinth and Syria, and in the third missionary journey, they're in Ephesus, and Paul leaves them behind, and they evangelize, and it's there that they have this opportunity to reach this unique individual, this colorful character in the early church, a man by the name of Apollos. And when we look at Apollos, it's remarkable to look at his past. He's an Alexandrian. Now, as there's the humble Samaritan woman who maybe has no education, who's low on the social strata, then you look at this eunuch who is a high official, one of the most important people in this country. Now we're looking at a man who maybe necessarily didn't have the political influence, but was somebody who was sharp, who was educated, coming from Alexandria, He was coming from perhaps the most educated city in the world. It had a renowned university. It had the most famous library of the ancient world, between 400,000 and 900,000 books and scrolls. That's his past. But then we look at his pedigree and we find that he's eloquent. He's mighty in the scriptures. He's instructed in the way of the Lord. And we see his passion because there's a fervency in the way that he, a zeal in the way that he goes about it. But he's got a partial proficiency because all he understands is the baptism of John the Baptist. This is the man that Aquila and Priscilla have an opportunity with. And how do they get up a Bible study with him? When we look at at what they did and what we can do in following them, we see first of all that they listened You know, how many doors of opportunity are opened when we will just listen? For many years now, there have been agencies and companies that have made so much money just by volunteering to listen to people talk. We call them sometimes counseling. People go in and they spend a lot of money and they talk to somebody who will listen to their problems, their issues, and their concerns. But in a spiritual sense, you have Aquila and Priscilla who put themselves in the proximity of Apollos and they listen to him. Before they ever try to teach him, they want to know exactly where he's at. And in the opportunities that we have, it can all begin by simply putting ourselves in the path of somebody else and listening to what's on their mind, what their story is, where they're coming from. We also see a remarkable tact that they demonstrate. When Apollos, misguided as he is, is saying the things that he's saying, some of which are true, some of which are not, they don't publicly rebuke him. They don't rake him over the coals. They take him aside and then privately they talk about what it is he needs to know from the scripture. They also clearly communicate. Now this has been a matter of practice. They've been working on growing their knowledge and 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 they're working with Paul on these missionary journeys. But with those opportunities, God opens bigger doors. Man, what a big door Apollos was. But they clearly communicate. They tell him where it is that he needs to maybe adjust his understanding. But They also have vision. This visionary couple didn't just see what was in front of them. They saw what he could be. Now, in Apollos' case, here is a great man with so many potential talents. Maybe we'd say a five-talent man, and sometimes that's not the case for us. We're looking at somebody who maybe may be more plain and ordinary, and maybe they're rough around the edges. But in either case, we've got to be a visionary and see how God can use them in His kingdom. Don't just look at what's in front of you. Try to look with God's eyes and see the finished product of what they can be through the gospel. I have seen this so many times. Plain and ordinary members of the church who have seen somebody who needs the gospel and who talk to them and work with them. And who knows but that they might turn out to be a Peter as Andrew uh, brought him to Christ, or might turn out to be a Gus Nichols, or may turn out to be some great soul winner themselves through the humble efforts of that are taken behind the scenes. You see, God can grow the church. The church got one of its greatest preachers because Aquila and Priscilla were visionary. How do we get up a Bible study? You know, as we think about this particular subject, it's important for all of us to be engaged in this. I want to say to you that it has been an amazing thing to watch in the last almost two years. I don't know that in my lifetime as a preacher I've ever seen anybody who is so effective at doing that as Hiram is. His ability to get people to sit down and study God's Word. But brethren, God is not putting all of that on His shoulders. That's a a responsibility that all of us have. Not just those of us who preach or the elders, but all of us. And, and certainly, the better person to have delivered this message probably would have been Hiram, who could have told you, here's what I've done so over and over again. But see, I think for us to have Bible studies to be successful, it takes different types. It takes different people. If you want to look at the box of the Bible study, maybe there are four parts to that. The first part of that is the inviters. You want to think about the recent conversion that with uh, Karen. There was an inviter involved in that. Somebody who said, hey, come to church with me. Maybe not one, but actually a couple who said, come to church. Come and and worship with us. And that was the way in. But sometimes there are some people, and I've noticed it throughout my life, who have an uncanny ability to invite somebody to, to get into a Bible study. But then there's also the welcomers. Those sweet spirits, those people who are, are maybe possessed of the, of the peacemaker ability, but the one who knows how to get people together. The one who makes people feel not intimidated, but to feel at home. We need those welcomers. The ones who maybe are the bridge builders. If we get them in the building to answer an invitation to come to church, the one who, and in the, uh, Karen's uh, uh, instance, there was a welcomer or two, and they helped them to feel at home. And, and they continued to encourage them on an ongoing basis. And then there were getters. There are getters, those who are able to get somebody to consent, to say, yes, I'll sit down and I'll study. And then the fourth side of that box is the studier himself or herself. But you see how we can partner together In getting people to sit down, instead of maybe thinking, I've got to be the one that sits down and studies with somebody, why not be one who is an inviter and saying, hey, would you like to study? We have people who would like to do that. Or maybe I'll sit in with whoever it is that will lead that study. Or maybe come to church with me. And when they do, we can be the one who doesn't leave it to somebody else but make sure that we go up to that new face and we encourage them and maybe we follow up with them and we text them and we ask them, hey, do you want to go to lunch or whatever it may be. And then be the gentle persuasion that says, hey, if you ever like to study God's word, you know, let, let's do that. And then be one, if you're able to, that sits down and studies with them. But I want you to consider this when we think about getting a Bible study with somebody, there are at least four things to remember. That First of all, timing is everything. There are people who reach certain situations in their lives where they're open. They may not be open right now, but if you'll plant, or maybe you'll water, maybe you're helping for the time in which maybe after rapport is built, you can do that Bible study. Framing is everything. Be positive. I don't know about you, but sometimes I'm concerned that the answer is going to be no, so why even bother? Expect a yes. You may get a no, but expect it. And be focused. And then be able to turn it to the spiritual. Be able to get past the small talk and get to the more serious matter. Questions are everything. Ask people about their story, about their past, about their life. Find out from them what's going on, and from there maybe you can find the need and maybe the way in. Ask open-ended questions that lead to more interest. And perception is everything. The perception that I'm talking about is the perception of uh, not doing God's work for him. To realize that there are different types of learners. There are different types of soil But there's not any mention but one in the parable of the sower about the sower himself, but there are six mentions of the seed. Look and see how people are being responsive to the gospel and try to to discern who is that good soil, but realize that in the end, God's the one who determines. Because there have been so many people that we thought would never be receptive. Who would have thought that Saul of Tarsus would have been a good prospect? But even when they're not necessarily a good prospect, be willing to speak to them, as John the Baptist did with Herod and as Paul did with Felix and Agrippa. But the bottom line point is, we don't have to be Bible scholars. We don't have to, to be academians in order to be involved in this process. It is the middle of June. I want to challenge you, and I want you to challenge me. Can all of us be working on just one person That we can be involved in trying to get into a study. Before the clock strikes 12 on the new year in 2024, can you find somebody? Go to the examples that we've looked at tonight. Look at how Jesus did it with that woman. Look at how Philip did it with that eunuch. And look at how Aquila and Priscilla did it with that man mighty in the scriptures. And see if you can find some strategies there to try to get somebody to open their hearts and their minds to the gospel. That's how the church is going to grow. As God blesses us with people coming in, and as we baptize folks, and then we try to follow up and to help them to grow in Christ, there are more souls out there that are seeking. It may be tonight that you've not yet made the decision to obey Christ. The invitation is uh, being offered. As Jared leads us in a song to encourage us, if you need to respond to heaven's invitation, we'd urge you to come right now as we stand and sing.